0: Welcome to Private Equity Perspectives, a podcast by BDO USA's Private Equity Practice. Each episode, BDO connects with leaders in the private equity space to discuss the latest trends driving deal activity, fund strategies, and portfolio company optimization. Hello and welcome to BDO's Private Equity Perspectives podcast. I'm Todd Kinney. National Relationship Director in BDO's private equity practice based in New York City. It's my real pleasure to have two guests here uh, who are eager to discuss uh, investing in one of today's hottest asset classes, and that's infrastructure. Uh, Just a quick reminder that the remarks and opinions of our guests do not necessarily represent BDO's views. I'd like to introduce Andrew Schwartz, who's a director at Stiefel Financial. Excited to have you here, Andrew.
1: Thanks, Todd. Great to be here with you. Uh Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, Next, I'd like to welcome Aaron Richardson,
0: who's co-founder and a managing partner at SMC Infrastructure Partners. Thanks for being here, Aaron. Thanks very much, Todd. I appreciate you inviting me on today. Of course, of course. Let's jump right in. Andrew, we'll kick it off with you as a uh, director at Stiefel. Maybe you can tell our listeners about your firm, your role, and maybe some of the bigger deals you've been working on.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I am a director on the infrastructure services investment banking team with Steeple and have been with the firm for a little over 11 years at this point. Steeple is a full service investment banking advisory firm uh, focused on the middle market. We specialize in sell side and buy side M&A engagements, debt and equity capital raising transactions. And we also have a restructuring group. Within uh, infrastructure services, I spend the majority of my time around electric, gas, water, wastewater, and transportation verticals. Some recent transactions that I've worked on include the April sale of North American substation services and electric power systems in a combination trade to private equity firm Arcline. NAS and EPS uh, provide specialized services to the electric utility substation market, I also worked on the sale of Goldfield Corporation to private equity firm First Reserve in a take-private transaction that closed in December of last year. Goldfield specializes in electric transmission line development, maintenance, and repair for IOUs, munis, and co-ops throughout the southeastern U.S.
0: All right, Andrew, sounds like you're a busy man, so we, uh, we look forward to hearing your thoughts in the uh, discussion today. Aaron, turning over to you. Uh, as I just mentioned, again, you co-founded SMC Infrastructure Partners and are a man- managing partner there. Uh, perhaps you can give us an intro to SMC and also talk about your experience founding and starting a new firm uh, in 2020. Yeah, sure, Todd. Thanks very much. Yep. So SMC is a, a recently launched middle market private
2: equity sponsor focused on what we call core plus infrastructure. By way of background, if, if core infrastructure is the asset itself, right? Power plant, transmission line, rail car, you know, marine tug and tow boat, port, the, the thing. Core plus means any business that touches that asset, whether that's via services, heavy maintenance, build and rebuild, mission critical products, et cetera. As a firm, I think we we feel that you know one of our competitive advantages and certainly where we're rooted is in a, a unique blend of corporate private equity and buyout experience and infrastructure project finance experience tied to a, a bench of pretty deep technical expertise at the infrastructure asset level. Um, we think that blend really hasn't been brought to market on a dedicated basis certainly not focused on um, the scale that we are which sort of sub you know 35 million of EBITDA um, and I'm sure we'll get into, into more detail later or, or on a different uh, venue on some of the uh, you know the, the deeper dives as to what we're doing here at SMC but that's a, a short overview uh, with yeah. respect to you know founding a firm in in 2020, you know, it's interesting. We we actually started out with this uh, the, or the the original kind of iteration of this uh, in January of 2020 before the pandemic hit, and you know our, our thesis hasn't changed really much at all. We've just been you know, focused on quietly developing our our team and our angle and our our bench of resources, and certainly beginning to fold some of our our anchor investors who we're really excited to be working with into the picture. But I think ultimately, COVID was a blessing for us. You know, I think starting a private equity firm is, is, is no small feat to be sure, but I think doing so during the pandemic where all the guts and the building of the team and sharpening of the thesis and getting folks to come on board and getting folks to put some, some capital behind it, you know, that effort, the cost of that effort was much, much lower. Um, just because folks, uh, who were creative and and excited about doing new things were, were kind of bored, frankly. Uh, mm-hmm. and we were able to take advantage of, you know, wide open uh, office spaces that we could that we could sit in together and and, and actually put this the, the the pieces in place I mean operating something as a going concern I think can be done you know largely remotely um, uh, you know although investment banking and private equity is somewhat of, of, of an apprenticeship industry I still think you know folks have done a good job through 2020 getting deals done as, as you've just heard from from Andrew I think building something from the ground is is difficult to do uh, on, on a webcam. Um, I think we benefited, you know, hugely from from a chance to to kind of quietly put our our machine together while 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 folks were were you know focused elsewhere. So
0: yeah, well, I certainly appreciate the background, Uh, Aaron. I'll stick with you and toss the uh, the first question your way. Perhaps for our listeners, you can uh, share your perspective on how infrastructure has and really continues to evolve as an asset class, especially as it relates to private equity.
2: Sure. And I think it's important to kind of widen the aperture of the lens on this question. You know, what I mean by that is yes, infra as an asset class has evolved, I think, materially, especially in the US and and will continue to do so, I think, in a number of, of different areas. However, I think the evolution across the, the spectrum of infrastructure investors themselves, meaning those folks who've been in it for a long time, who who is sort of coming into the fold, how you know competition for assets as well as as well as more corporate service companies looks. Um, and where the private and public capital markets are are around the asset class, I think in our view that that movement, that sort of um, tectonic shift, is I think as much of a driver of the asset class's evolution in and of itself as as anything else is. Um, I think when you talk about you know where yield compression and and competition at the infrastructure asset level on the core side, right? So. Um, contracted, you know, small, medium to large-scale infrastructure projects, whether it's on the power side, the transmission side, um, you know, other various, uh, you know, water, wastewater, whatever it might be, the, you know, the amount of capital that is chasing that space that has been in the buckets of of sort of, uh, you know, legacy infrastructure funds for for a long time, you know, is is struggling to, to go out the door. One, because a lot of those infra funds are are pretty well size constrained. But but even putting that aside, the, the competition for for assets with contracted revenues that are just pure you know pure uh, you know tolls, if you will, um, not in the literal form, but in that sort of contract type structure. Even if there's significant hedge merchant or otherwise sort of um, spot exposed risk in the cash flow stream at the asset level. There's the competition is just absolutely fierce. I think folks who went out as infrastructure funds six, five, you know, four, and even years ago, and then even back towards 10 years ago, um, they wanted to go out and get, you know, low to mid teens returns on a 20 to 30 year basis at the asset level, I think have realized, and frankly, for the last number of years has been have been realizing that just isn't possible anymore. And so Some of the evolution in the asset class, especially as as we begin to look towards infrastructure services and infrastructure products, you know, build and rebuild um, on the kind of contractor and heavy maintenance side, which is where we spend a a lot of our time, um, you know, core plus in general. That evolution is, I think, in large part being driven by there's a a wall of capital uh, on the infra side traditionally that just doesn't have anywhere to go uh, on a on a sort of value realizing basis, and so there has been a material shift that's still very much in its infancy of larger scale traditional asset level investors stretching uh, in, into sort of how we define core plus. Um, and I think that dynamic, um, coupled with, you know, where infrastructure is in the US, especially, I mean, the US has been perennially bad at at folding private capital in the, in the infrastructure and optimizing the the sort of Aggregate capital stack, if you will, around this asset class. And so there's a huge opportunity globally to continue sort of moving this evolution forward. There's quite a lot more flexibility. But in the US, especially around things that are owned or operated by FERC 1000 regulated utilities on the transmission side, or whatever else it might be, there's there's an evolution of stretching sort of beyond the asset. One, because there are so few assets on a relative basis, at least against the quantum of the capital uh, available that come to market. And secondly, it's it's much easier, at least in our view, to get defended exposure to the infrastructure asset class in the U.S. with a services
0: or otherwise related kind of one to two degrees removed type of play, if that makes sense. Yeah. No. Listen, some really good points there. I appreciate that, Aaron. Uh, so, Andrew, same question to you. And again, I know Aaron gave us a great uh, in-depth uh, reply there. So. The question again, what's what's your perspective on how infrastructure has evolved as an asset class, and how will that evolution uh, continue as it relates to private equity?
1: Yeah, so I'll speak from an infrastructure services perspective, since that's where I spend all of my time. There really has been a convergence of a number of factors that uh, have driven more and more interest in the broader infrastructure sector over the last couple of years. I think it's been really interesting to watch the number of private equity investors who are starting to recognize the attractiveness of this vertical. And it really does go far beyond the headlines that you're seeing um, in the media regarding infrastructure stimulus. I think investors are increasingly acknowledging the supply-demand imbalance between the volume of non-discretionary work to address the nation's aging, strained infrastructure And the number of contractors capable of performing these needed repairs and upgrades. Another trend that I think is really fueling growth for infrastructure service providers and, frankly, drawing interest uh, from investors in the sector is the fact that asset owners across the spectrum, whether it's electric, gas, utilities, transportation, telecom, water, wastewater, are consciously becoming more reliant on third-party outsourced service providers where the largest contractors are benefiting disproportionately as these asset owners actively look to consolidate their vendor base. I think you'll really continue to see these themes play out and gain momentum moving forward. All right,
0: awesome. We appreciate those perspectives, Andrew, and your thoughts on the trends let's stay with you as we dive a little uh, deeper here. Are there certain sub-verticals within infrastructure uh, that you're more focused on than others, especially as as it relates to services and products and not just the uh, core infrastructure assets?
1: Sure, so I'll share some perspectives on the electric utility market since I spend most of my time in this vertical. And a major trend that we're tracking right now is the proliferation of renewable energy, particularly wind and solar and the substantial demand for service providers to integrate new generation sources coming online and uh, tying them into the existing grid. I think this can be highly infrastructure intensive since renewable sources are often in remote areas, far from electricity demand centers. Uh, You saw that theme play out. Uh, I mentioned our sale of Goldfield Corporation uh, last year. That was certainly a theme that I think drew a lot of groups to that asset. Um, You're also seeing a lot of growth in service provider demand coming from infrastructure hardening and modernization programs, where utilities are committing tens of billions of dollars over long periods of time to overcome decades of underinvestment that's left many assets age beyond their useful lives and really vulnerable to costly failures. I think on the hardening side, many utilities along the coastlines, for example, are migrating their overhead electric systems underground to protect them from extreme weather events. As you can imagine, this involves the coordination of a lot of different uh, infrastructure contractors.
0: All right. Making a lot of sense, Andrew. Appreciate that. Flipping to Aaron here. Anything uh, to add about the subverticals within infrastructure?
1: Yeah,
2: no, I think I'll, I'll actually echo uh, uh, some perspectives around you know, the the topic that and Andrew was just was just going on on, which, you know, I think the, everyone's favorite word now is is energy transition because, like, you know, the the many cycles of fashion we've seen, it's like green is the new black, right? It's it's been that way for a number of years now, and certainly it's getting quite frothy right now. But I think it's it's important to understand that, you know, a lot of sort of corporate, private equity, and and, and VC who who are Jumping up and down and shouting about about energy transition because their LPs love it. Um, don't really have; they're just not equipped with the asset level understanding around renewable power, battery storage, transmission, the grid, and how it ties back to the dispatch stack and where the various you know ISO operators in the country are and what the actual individual sort of subgrids look like. Um, where is the broader generation base, and where is the gap on on getting to sort of the the Nirvana event of of 100 renewables, and I think the reality is that there's there's a, a a pretty deep reservoir of technical knowledge around, you know, use transmission assets for an example. We're actually spending quite a bit of time in this space around a uh, some some transmission technology providers, both at the at the product and service level, that are uh, very well positioned to to help uh, you know press that initiative forward. Andrew's absolutely right about uh, the need for that, um, but I think. It's, it's critical to to be able to look beyond the trend and beyond sort of the, the P&L of any one sort of service or product provider and, and understand that when we think about, you know, renewable power sources, intermittent resources being, uh, as Andrew aptly noted, in remote areas, the, you know, the, the gap between integrating those things is, is hugely complicated because transmission in this country uh, if it's utility owned which the vast vast majority of it is is you know in the rate base and regulated by FERC 1000 so y- getting getting those projects sort of in place um especially tying them back to to various storage opportunities at the site level is is you know it can be a tough road to hoe sort of integrating the, the necessary sort of private capital and service providers against you know the the utilities you know uh, monopoly if you will around how to move those assets forward. I mean, utilities are <clears throat> notoriously slow uh at, at, at getting things done despite having uh, all of the, the resources in the world. That's just that's the way they've always been. It's nothing personal against them. Um I think ultimately, you know, when we look at when we look at that market, we see a huge opportunity again to access it from the service side, the product the the product side and and the contractor side around blending, you know, our relationships with utilities, our relationships with with various service providers, and our knowledge around the actual sort of technical detail around the asset in the market, so that we're we're doing more than kind of surfing the wave, if you will. I think also it's worth mentioning that, as I as alluded to before, we're spending quite a bit of time in our our infra build sub vertical, which is really us taking a a view on specialized general contractors that that are infrastructure focused and and transitioning them from you know construction companies who happen to focus on infra to infra companies that happen to be contractors right there's there's obviously a, a huge push for the the need to build and rebuild infrastructure upgrade infrastructure certainly and especially on the power and transmission side as well as you know road or airport or whatever else it might be but i think those those efforts um again are, are much better defended when there's a, a, a bench of asset
0: level expertise underneath sort of the, the, the corporate private equity angle. Yeah. All right. Well, great intel from both of you on that topic. Uh, now I'd like to turn it over to our coffee break guest, Seth Miller Gabriel, BDO's co lead of infrastructure advisory and P3s. Seth is based in BDO's DC office. Let's hear what he has to say.
3: Hello, and thank you for letting me join you for this coffee break. I am Seth Miller-Gabriel, co-lead of BDO USA's Infrastructure and Public-Private Partnerships team within the Valuation and Capital Markets Analysis practice. Today I want to speak with you about the important role private equity can play in the Infrastructure-Public-Private Partnerships market and the increasing opportunities for that involvement. There's a need for safe and reliable infrastructure in the United States and around the world. That demand for safer traditional infrastructures like roads and buildings and new infrastructures, including broadband and EV charging networks is increasing. That demand far outstretches the financial ability of governments to address on their own and new solutions are needed. The public private partnership model affords an opportunity to better meet that demand by accelerating the design and delivery of infrastructure projects by bringing together the full project team right at the start lowering costs and preventing delays. P3s also plan ahead for the maintenance of the project, forcing an accounting of the true life cycle cost of ownership. This holistic view means that infrastructure assets should be built correctly and maintained correctly for the long-term providing for better value for money. Private equity plays a critical role in the P3 delivery model. Most P3 projects include around 10% equity investment, match up with private debt and additional public capital. This investment is normally held within a special purpose vehicle designed to own and manage the project contracts for the full term of the P3 agreement. Some of the benefits that investing in infrastructure-based P3s provide private equity investors include a non-recourse way of diversifying into the infrastructure space, a return much higher than that traditionally yielded by public debt, A stable return as the project is either funded through public sector availability payments, or in the case of toll facilities, public demand-based fees. A longer term than many investments that allow PE investors to exit after the lock-in period, generally five to seven years for larger projects, or remain in the project for the full term, generally 30-plus years. Connected to the benefits that investing in P3s provide to private equity, P3 projects and the growth in the infrastructure market benefit greatly from the involvement of private equity. Equity investment in P3 infrastructure projects allow projects to be delivered faster as capital is deployed to meet design and construction costs. Equity investment also brings more accountability to the lifelong management of the project as PE returns sit at the bottom of the revenue waterfall and PE investors are much more active in the operations of that project to ensure the operations and better guarantee those returns. That active involvement results in better performing projects with better outcomes for end users. In the United States, the P3 model has been applied primarily for risk-demand, fee-driven projects like toll roads. One example being the Capital Beltway Express Lanes in Northern Virginia. The financing for this project included a $351 million private equity investment against a total project cost of $1.9 billion. That investment will receive returns generated from user fees paid for by drivers using the express lanes for 80 years. Most recently, we have seen a marked increase in public owners procuring social infrastructure projects, public buildings, under an availability structure with funding and returns provided directly from the public owner. The Howard County Courthouse in Maryland is the latest success story for this model. As the focus and government support for infrastructure projects is sure to grow, so will the opportunity for private equity to play a key role. All currently proposed infrastructure policies at the federal level here in the United States include a call for more public-private partnerships. P3s cannot happen without private equity, so the number and frequency of available P3 investment opportunities is sure to increase. I'll turn it back over to you, Tom. Thanks, Seth. Now, let's resume our
0: conversation with Andrew Schwartz and Aaron Richardson. All right, guys, we're going to kick off the second half with the regulatory side of things. While there's uh, much more to the infrastructure landscape than um, President Biden's proposed plan has, we'd be remiss not to talk about it. So, Aaron, I'm going to uh, start this one with you. What are your viewpoints about the much anticipated federal uh, infrastructure plan?
2: Well, I think everyone can agree that it's it's certainly long overdue. Um, but I think beyond that, you know, it's again, it, it's a tough road to hoe. I, I think we always like to look through through the lens here on on where is where is the gap, and and usually where is the gap in understanding. I think if you look at Anything that's being debated in Congress, I think everyone on, on every side of the political spectrum can agree that there's, there's certainly a, a, a technical gap in knowledge at the congressional level around some of these, you know, incredibly important issues to our to our country. Certainly, infrastructure, likely first and foremost. And I think, you know, I believe a bill will get done. Uh, I think, you know, we'll, we'll get there at some point. Hopefully, sooner than later. Um, there's obviously quite a bit of debate around what what can be called infrastructure from a public funding perspective and, and what is political maneuvering uh but ultimately you know i think I, we're hopeful that uh as as time goes on this is an opportunity for the us to make a a transition towards um things that are a little more reminiscent of, of where you know in how infrastructure has been developed or privatized or quasi-privatized um in other parts of the world um i think this is the first time in a long time that the country at large is actually having a discussion around infrastructure. I think is is it a discussion that we in an ideal world, you know, should be having. No, but but having it is, is a huge step. And I think, you know, continuing to, to pay attention to where the nuance is around whether it's the scope of the bill or the size of the bill uh, is going to be important. And I think for us, when we look at our own thesis, you know, the the bill is a, a fantastic potential tailwind, which again, I think we do believe we'll will get there. But even without it, I think given the dynamics of, of where the capital markets are and infrastructure, where the opportunities are uh, in, in the country, whether it's on the services or product side or the asset side, um, as well as globally, uh, it, there's there's so much out there uh, in terms of you know interest in the space and, and opportunities to be creative that the secular trend here around infrastructure uh, and the level of interest, I think is going to stay strong you know, regardless of what happens at the federal level. And I think frankly, when you look across, as Andrew sort of alluded to before, when you look across the the sort of on a macro level overnight um you know attention diversion from private equity, you know, towards infrastructure and sort of the broader sort of non-dedicated infra-capital markets towards infrastructure, a lot of that you know was spurred in advance of of the change in, in government and in anticipation of a large infra bill. I think the folks who are who are going to be smartest on this opportunity um, around the space. I think we're there a long time ago um, because it's. I think it's sort of viewed as some version of this or 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 a meaningful push towards more infra spend, both the public and private level, is somewhat inevitable. So I think we're excited about it. Um, I think we're we're very hopeful that we'll get to a place that's that's meaningful and that has a huge impact on on the country. Um, but we're also
0: focused on what we're doing, regardless of what happens at the federal level. Sure. Well, we're certainly going to see what happens. Andrew, what's uh, what's on your mind regarding the uh, the infrastructure plan and where you see it going?
1: Yeah. So I, I think there is just too much bipartisan support around this issue, and one of the only areas of bipartisan support, I might add, in today's contentious political arena. But with that support, I think for infrastructure stimulus to not get passed, I think is unlikely here, but I'm very interested to see the final shape that takes form. Um, like Aaron, I'd love to see a sweeping large-scale bill make it through, but there's significant disagreement on how it ultimately gets funded. I think you may end up seeing infrastructure-specific proposals come to pass like a long-term solution to expiration of the FAST Act and the transportation market to name one example, as opposed to maybe a single bill that's far-reaching across infrastructure subsectors. Regardless, I think the transportation, telecom, and electric utility markets will be the big beneficiaries of significant legislation actions in the near future. And I'd also echo what Aaron said at the end there regarding infrastructure service providers really not needing an infrastructure bill to continue to clip really strong growth year over year. I think it's more seen as gravy on top by the buyers we're talking to on different infrastructure services assets. I am hopeful to see something come to pass, but I think how it ultimately looks is still a major question out there.
0: All right, Andrew, thank you. So speaking of the future, it's time to throw out a crystal ball question to both of you we typically have these towards the uh, the ends of uh, other episodes. So this will be the last question of the day. It seems like infrastructure has become much sexier as an asset class, probably over the last 24 to 36 months, which is a pretty rapid time frame on a macro level investing cycle. So a two-part question, um, what do you think is driving that? And do you have a view on what the near and medium term future holds for infrastructure private equity? Andrew, let's go to you first and then we'll wrap with Aaron.
1: So there's no question that private equity interest in infrastructure and infrastructure related markets has reached a fever pitch in recent years. I think there are several drivers behind this uh, within the infrastructure services market. But I believe one key reason is the fact that companies in this vertical have proven to be highly resilient um, and cycle resistant, owing to the fact that the services they're providing are often non-discretionary and non-deferrable uh, for these asset owners. This has certainly proven to be true through the COVID pandemic, where many of the service providers that we were working with didn't miss a beat uh, given the critical or essential nature of the work that they're performing. I also believe that more and more investors are recognizing that our nation is facing an infrastructure crisis that will take a very long time to work itself out. And publications like the American Society of Civil Engineers Infrastructure Report Card, which they put out annually, offers a really critical assessment of U.S. infrastructure conditions. And this is causing groups to become increasingly aware of the dilemma and prompting capital providers to look for ways to invest in the sector. Uh, To answer your second question, I think we'll see some form of infrastructure legislation over the near term. Um, and I fully expect the feeding frenzy to continue with respect to private equity firms investing in infrastructure services businesses. I do think over the medium term, uh, I wouldn't, really wouldn't be surprised if macro factors that aren't sector specific, like rising interest rates and tightening lending standards, which may crowd out uh, private equity buyers in this market or prevent them from paying up for certain assets could cause some contraction in valuations of infrastructure assets. But for all the reasons that we've discussed today, I, I see the broader infrastructure market faring much better than other sectors in that environment.
0: Well, I appreciate your uh, insight into the future, Andrew. Aaron, care to weigh in here as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think when you backed up to sort of 30,000 feet and you look at,
2: you know, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, kind of where, where the capital markets are, especially from a private sponsor perspective, whether that's infra fund or PE fund or, or otherwise, around you know around this space, there's been you know a, a huge transition um, and, and, a, and a, a growth in the level of of interest and focus on the marketplace over the last couple of years. And I think you know as as again as we mentioned earlier, when we think about the the scale of capital at the sort of traditional infra fund level, it's you know, orders of magnitude typically larger than where even some of the the, the more sizable corporate private equity groups are. Um, you know, even at the largest scales. So, and for example, you think about um, some of the largest players on on the infra side, whether it's you know global infrastructure partners or or EQT or or you know those those folks and even the folks who have one or two orders of magnitude scale b- below them are managing many many tens of billions of dollars around you know an infrastructure only set of strategies. And have to write, you know, three, four, five hundred million dollar equity checks, if not more, to really move the needle. Um, and so, if you think of that as sort of that that steel bar that kind of pushes the quarters off off the edge of the the machine at, at the arcade, there's a driving force, you know, be, at the back of the capital markets that is sort of providing heat to this space, if that makes sense. And I think. When you look at how that extrapolates to where private equity is from a from a corporate kind of buyout perspective and certainly where we sit, we think it creates an absolutely enormous opportunity to be, you know, technically deep on expertise, focused on blending infrastructure knowledge at the asset and, and commodity market or, or, or various sort of physical market level with corporate buyout experience and be able to basically be on the other side of Andrew and, and go to folks. Um, you know, owners, operators, manager teams, and say, look, you know, if you look at partnering with a, a typical private equity sponsor, you know, their their approach to this is going to be, you know, a little different than ours. Um, we 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 think manager teams and, and CEOs are are, and frankly, in our experience, certainly with what we're what we're we're doing now, we're about 60 days away from, from closing our first platform. You know, there there's there's the message resonates around being not a traditional, you know, middle market PE shop that's looking for a you know a three to five you know year exit or so and let's cut some costs, and let's try and grow it as fast as we can, recognizing a lot of these infra businesses, as Andrew mentioned, you know, they they are sort of long-term cycle hedges, but they they move up and down in the interim. And so it's difficult to sort of you know grip, rip and lever them up the way that I think you know it can be done in, in other more traditional kind of industrial sectors. And so our view is if we can blend where we know the momentum is, both on a private and the public level, with an approach to you know the most important piece of the equation, which is management teams behind these businesses, and demonstrate that there's a path forward, you know that that involves uh, a blend of experience that really hasn't existed before. Uh, we're we're really excited to be taking advantage of that, and I think when when we look at the market broadly, you know we're very hopeful that that the U.S. continues to transition. Um, Towards an an infrastructure like marketplace that that is faster growing, that is you know more more diversely funded, um, that has a bit of a wider angle lens on what what is defined as infrastructure. Uh, and frankly, you know we're spending time globally as well, and we we see a lot of interesting juxtaposition around how things are done in in various parts of of, of South America and Latin America and elsewhere versus what the opportunity is here. And there's you know I, I think the the whole world. Uh, but for a handful of exceptions, um, you know, is is in need of of continued infrastructure development and maintenance. And I think we're we're excited to be a, a, a small boat in that sea, but but hopefully one that's that's going to start moving
0: pretty quickly. All right, appreciate all that insight, Aaron. So listen, guys, uh, Andrew, Aaron, you guys really knocked the uh, cover off the ball today. Lots of great insights, a lot of great uh, perspectives on what you guys th- see is going to think is going to happen and certainly some uh, nice predictions for the years uh, to come. So um, this was a robust discussion for sure, and I'm sure our audience is super appreciative uh, of your insights. Um, To our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show on iTunes. Until next time, this is BDO's Private Equity Perspectives. The views presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective firms.